That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Kristen Anderson Lopez, and my dilemma is I have to make plans for the summer in January because of the kids' schedules, and I never want to sit down and think about summer in January. So at first, I was going to question you saying that you don't want to think about the summer in January. Of course you would want to think about the summer when it's freezing cold. Then I remembered, well, you're probably in L.A. And if you're in L.A., then winter is basically the same as summer. There's not that much difference. And then I remembered even more importantly that you're writing songs for Frozen and Frozen 2, which is all about the winter, and that's where the money is made. So now I understand why perhaps you wouldn't want to be thinking all about the summer months in January. And also, as somebody who feels like the years are going by faster and faster the older I get, there is something sort of unsettling about having to plan something in May right now while it's December. Then I feel like the months go by faster and faster because you already have your schedule filled up. So I feel sorry for you, but my solution is not one that will fix the problem because as long as your kids are in school, you will have to plan ahead for summer vacation. You will have to delay those big trips and things that aren't work-related for a couple months down the line. But the one thing that you can do maybe to make things a little bit better is to be more gradually planning, to make a list even in the summer months of where you might want to go the next year or places that you want to go, things you want to explore so that it doesn't feel like all of a sudden you're stressed out and trying to do it all at once in January or February Have a bucket list item where you're planning and watching all the different videos and photos on Instagram from the places you want to visit and the things you want to do. It might make it at least a little bit more enjoyable. The commish has spoken. This week's guest is Oscar and Grammy Award winning songwriter Kristen Anderson Lopez. She's written songs for Frozen, Frozen 2, Frozen on Broadway, Coco, all sorts of things. Uh, she is nominated beyond the wins for the Grammys and the Oscars, also nominated for Emmys, Tonys and Golden Globes. Uh, I had an interview with her at the ESPNW Summit a couple months ago and found her so fantastic that I wanted to bring her to you guys, especially with Frozen 2 hitting the theaters. Uh, So we talked about all sorts of stuff, giving up the dream of being a performer to instead become the creator behind the music. Uh, The first time she collaborated with her husband, the double EGOT, how they fought, what they fought about, and how years later they're still fighting about the same things when they collaborate. Uh, what it's like to have the pressure of following up with a smash success like Let It Go and the first Frozen and how they approached the work this time and what comes first when they're doing the work. Plot, the music, the stories, the characters, all that stuff. Um, also how she went to a Norwegian forest to get inspired. All sorts of good stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. That's what she said. So it's lovely to get the chance to chat with Kristen again. We sat down at the ESPNW Summit in New York earlier this year, and I just loved talking to her, not just about the process of writing all this beautiful music, but what an interesting career setup she has, working with her husband almost every day and raising kids together as well, just the balancing of uh, of disagreements over creative process and everything else. So this is, this is great timing, too, because as Frozen 2 has just taken over the lives of all my nieces and nephews, uh, I get the backstory on everything and get to get to pick around in how it was made. But let's start at the beginning. So, Kristen, you're growing up. You moved around a couple times, but from a very young age, you you fell in love with musical theater, right? That's right. Um, and just, just to say thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I remember sitting down to do an ESPN um, panel with you and thinking, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> I'm a theater person. Um, and immediately we sang Part of Your World. So I yes. was like, oh, I'm with my people. Yes, of course. <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, but yes, I, I, my dad tells a story of um, I went to go see my babysitter who was the next door neighbor um, rehearsed her high school musical and I think I was less than two and they were all singing uh, and dancing and he just looked at me and was like oh my god this kid has just been bitten by something Um, and ever since I just if there's a story to be told especially with music and singing and dancing um, I'm obsessed. 
Yeah, I used to charge family members to attend my performances at a young age. So I, you know, I had the economic side of things as well in terms of my <laughs> desire to to monetize performance. But um, I remember my parents. We went to all the things that were popular then: Cats and Phantom of the Opera and all the Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, jo- Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So when you were coming up, were there specific musicals that stuck out to you? Well, you actually named some major uh, influences. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber is probably one of the best melodists in the world. Um, you know, he talks about being obsessed with Richard Rogers' melodies in his book. And my husband just recently said, oh, my gosh, we were completely – the way he feels about Richard Rogers is how we feel about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Because yeah. we did grow up on Music of the Night, and my whole eighth-grade year, I thought I was Evita from Evita, and I would <laughs> take my Mr. Microphone and sing it from using my closet as my proscenium stage um, and make people sit on my bed while I performed all of Evita. Amazing. Yeah, it's funny how those stick with you too when you get when you get older even though you might learn and and become enamored with other stuff. It's those ones when you were a kid that you remember every single word to and and even the musical parts because I would listen to the soundtracks over and over so I would be singing along with the violins. Um okay, so you're 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 bitten by the bug. Um you end up performing I presume in high school were you in all the musicals and and chorus and everything else? I was. Um I when I moved from New York to Charlotte, North Carolina, I was 14. It was right before my freshman year. Um, and I was, I went to a school, Charlotte Country Day School, that had an incredible choral program. And we had to sing for an hour every day. And I swear that's the only thing that kept me singing. <laughs> that and I found a um, Charlotte Children's Theater, which was this amazing uh amazing theater program that took kids from all over the city, all walks of life, all economic levels, um, you know, just, just a wonderful way to use theater to bring everybody together. Um, and I did a lot of theater through Charlotte Children's Theater and then only did the high school musical my senior year, which was Jesus Christ oh, wow. Superstar. Oh, gosh, that's a big one. <laughs> what did, what mm-hmm. was your role? I was Mary Magdalene, um, <laughs> but it was full of drama because I hadn't done the musical all the way through, and then I I got a, a lead, and that was kind of unfair to all the people who had put in their dues, paid their dues all the way through. So I still feel a little guilty and bad about that. High school politics, yeah, it's uh, it's very serious. High school politics. <laughs> um, so you go to Williams <laughs> College, you double major in drama and psychology. So. The psychology part, was this just in case the other thing doesn't work? Was it to help build your your knowledge base for understanding the characters? What was the intention there? Um, I think part of it was that I really loved psychology, um, and I use it every single day in my writing career. Um, and uh, part of it was that my father was like, I'm not paying for Williams College so you can graduate with a degree in theater because um, <laughs> he was he was very much in business. Um, I, I like to tell him now that actually the number one export from America right now is content, creative content. So mm-hmm. having a theater major isn't such a bad a bad thing right now, but who could know that in 1990 blank? Right. Exactly. So you get to school and that's what you're sort of immersed in. When it becomes a a major part of your curriculum and what you're focused on, do you find you love it as much as you thought? Or is there a part of you that isn't sure if you want to make it a business? Um, You know, I actually think I always, I love it. It, It's where I become most alive. But the interesting thing about, about college, and I share this because I think there's a, so many of us haven't seen women writers. Um, we haven't seen women directors because it's, they're very, it's really sad how few examples we have in the world. And when I was in college, there was a, a guy, um, Jason Howland, who actually became a Broadway composer as well. And he asked me to direct his original musical. And I was too terrified because 
I didn't know what that looked like. And so I said no, and I ended up doing the Shakespeare, which was fun, but I actually should have challenged. I should have listened to that side of myself that was like, I want to do this. Um, And I let fear limit me. And so it took until I was in my 20s and really doing like playing way too many nuns in New Hampshire for (laughs) someone to finally say, you're, you're a creator. You're a lyricist. You're a director. Um, You should be doing that. And only because I was so unhappy and kind of knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Did I take the leap into the unknown to, um, to try and become the person behind the table. And I wrote my first song and I got into this, this workshop where I met my husband, but it was actually the moment of writing my first song and that feeling of like the sky opening up and Mm -hmm. it all making sense. This is what I'm supposed to do with my giant imagination and all of this musical uh, love in my heart. Um, And it's been a joy to do it ever since. There's fascinating parallels across a number of industries, but specifically uh, broadcasting, journalism, sports is like the people that you can see are, of course, probably the ones you aspire to be. You don't know what a producer does or, you know, what someone right. who's who's doing script supervising or, or directing. And so sometimes it, it's you need to become a, a part of the cog to understand that you're meant to be in another part of it. Um, but was it hard for you to give up that initial dream of I want to be the performer and the one on stage? It really was because that dream had been hammered into my consciousness from the second that I was like a little kid doing musicals in my backyard and and writing them, directing them, also starring in them. But the narrative (laughs) I downloaded was she's a girl, she likes theater, she's an actress. And it took a lot of it took a lot of soul searching and a lot of letting go of that idea that unless I was an actress on Broadway, um, I would have failed. And, and realizing like, you know what, that's, that's a very young narrative that it's time to let go of. Um, and, and there was great freedom in that. And I think that, you know, I imagine I not knowing, but I imagine, you know, you're, your athletic career, that minute of, of saying, okay, my time on the field for now is over and my time to celebrate those people on the field is just beginning. Right. Um, what freedom that is, but also it is a, a bit of a grief process and it is a bit of a thank you for that. Thank you for bringing me here. Now I let Kristen, the actress, go. You know, And I may be 65 and play Aunt Eller in Oklahoma sometime. You know, like right. I perform you never know. all the time. Yeah. You still have the opportunity to scratch that itch, which is great. Um, but you go mm-hmm. to this uh, music theater workshop, you start writing, you discover this, this skill and this, and this love that's adjacent, but not the same. And you meet your husband, Robert L- Lopez. Um, when you first started collaborating, yeah. writing songs for, you know, children's television shows and stuff like that, you weren't yet married. You were, you were just sort of, uh, early on in the relationship or were you married by then? We weren't married. Um, in fact, we started writing together because we had two problems of how to make money to pay rent <laughs> and how to spend time together because we were on completely different clocks. I was a teaching artist in the Bronx. Um, I was doing musicals with uh, tied to literacy. So, for instance, before the musical Hamilton, there was a hip-hop musical called And Then What Happened, Paul Revere, by the second <laughs> creators of PS230. Um, but uh, um, I was waking up at like 5, and Bobby was sleeping in all day, then watching a bunch of children's television because he was working on a show called Avenue Q, which was sort of a... a a fun send-up of children's television um, through the adult lens. Um, And we just weren't spending time. So we, he got this job writing songs for Bear in the Big Blue House and called me over one day. He's like, you know what, let's have a writing date night. Come over, we'll write a song. And um, it was really fun, but it was also, uh, it's so funny. We, We kind of got into a fight very quickly and it's the same fight we still have to this day of 
who is going to drive the car of this songwriting process. Um, we both like to to have the idea and run with it. And we've really had to learn how to how to talk and communicate and and do a big yes and of like, that's a good idea. What about this idea? Right. And really um, both drive the car. Well, and what's so hard about it is it's it's so subjective. It's not, oh, yes, that's the right answer to the math problem. Congratulations, you solved it. I accept your answer. It's no, I, I don't like that. Mine's better, right? And then how do you move forward from that moment of we don't agree on this note or this line? Um, I want to get to the collaborating and, and sort of the unique relationship you have in a little bit. But um, you're, so you're doing the, the television writing. And he obviously, as you mentioned, was already working on Avenue Q. Um, I believe also uh, won a Tony for his work on the Book of Mormon. At what point did you, I know you were writing some off-Broadway stuff yourself. How does the timeline work out for you deciding that you want to be working in Broadway and, and movie musicals versus the, the children's television? You know, it it just sort of all happens organically. Um, I mean, I was, we, the goal when you go to the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Writing Workshop, which is a big mouthful, <laughs> the goal is always to learn how to write songs that tell stories. And those stories can be episodic children's television, or those stories can be giant epic musicals. Um, you know, the... I was writing sort of a small musical that was all acapella with four friends of mine who we had an acapella group and we were just looking at our lives and writing songs about, about our lives at the time. Um, at the same time that Bobby was writing this puppet musical about the things he was facing. Um, because when you're in your twenties, you got to write what you know. Mm. And what you basically know is you've been in school for 20 years, 22 years and you're coming out and you're feeling really lost. So there's a lot of songs about being lost. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Where are you going to go? And yeah. it's really hard to write from a place of like, I know all of human history. <laughs> um, uh, now, only now in my, in my 40s do I feel like, oh, I have something to say about relationships and communication and uh, politics, you know, all, all of yeah. these things that I had no business writing about when I was 23. So you guys clearly figured it out, uh, the, the back and forth, the yes ending, um, because you've worked together uh, to create uh, Grammy and, uh, and Oscar winning songs for Frozen and Coco. And I remember you talking about the process of Remember Me, the song that you wrote for Coco that won the, the, uh, the Academy Award. Can you talk about kind of what inspired you when you were writing that song? Sure. Um, you know, for everything we've done for both Pixar and Disney, um, it always starts with story and it always starts with really great uh, directors who are who have a great idea and something very important they want to say. Um, and in the case of Coco and Remember Me, um, our director, Lee Unkrich, turned to us and he, he just had a question. He said, is there a way to write a song that if it's sung one way, it's sort of taking from people, you know, it's taking people's energy so you can be applauded and to, to write it where if it's done a different way, it can give something. And we were like, yes, I, we, we know what that feels like. Um, but then it was actually our own experience, um, as parents, you have to leave our own children to go work. When when we are working on the West Coast with Pixar or Disney, it usually means lots of trips away from our own two kids. And when they were really little, when we were working on Frozen and, and Winnie the Pooh before that, we had very small kids. And what we used to do is write them original lullabies that they could sing when we were gone. And we try never to be away more than three nights in a row. But uh, the babysitters, the little kid, our children would learn these songs and the babysitters would learn these lullabies. And then every night when they sang, it was like we were there. Hmm. Um, and so we decided, what if this songwriter character in Coco had a lullaby like that when he had to travel for business? He wrote this lullaby for his daughter, uh, that was, remember me, though I have to say goodbye, remember me, 
don't let it make you cry, like that. But then, a spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Coco, you really should. It's a beautiful movie. <laughs> um, his his partner steals it and turns it into a big love ballad. So it's like, remember me, though I have to say goodbye, remember me. It has a lot of swagger to it. And that is how Remember Me got written. It's beautiful. And, and I love the idea of having this present or this thing for your children, even when you're not there. And I know you've we talked about it, the ESPNW summit, this balance. You said you try not to stay away for more than three nights. You've turned down some really incredible opportunities, one that would have been this big time musical in England, uh, in order to find that balance. How do you reconcile that after the fact, the regret or the FOMO of thinking as you watch that production from afar coming together that you could have been a part of it? How do you reconcile that after after you've made that decision? Um, you know, the truth is it's very hard to make in the moment, but once, once you turn it down or once I turn something down, um, there's so many other things that I, that we have going on here with our kids, uh, that, that, that's what, you know, your passion draws you to. Um, it's always hard in the moment when you have to say, you have to make that final call and you say, no matter how much I would love to do this, it just isn't right for our family. And I think the biggest thing is knowing that um, our family being happy is, is really the key to our happiness. We've, we've had those moments where we've been, we've had way too much work and not enough time with our family. And that just creates a whole world of anxiety for everyone. Nobody does well. And then then it's not worth it. So for us right now, and and it's only a few more years like this, where we need to be on the ground here in New York as much as possible. um, It goes by so fast that right now the priority is harmony within our family and then creativity after that. Yeah, and I, I think you mentioned, too, that you used to work separately more often on different projects, and now you work very hard to work on, on the same project because it allows your schedules to sync and the time when you're off more likely to be the same to spend with your kids. That's true. That's a, a little secret when people are like, "Why do you? when did you really start working together? It was really after we had our first child, and we realized that when – when we got into dueling schedules, um, it was really bad for our family when it was like, well, I have this thing off Broadway and I have this thing in L.A. And who's going to be the one when the kid gets chicken pox uh, to sacrifice? And, you know, at the time, it was always me, in part because we had a very tiny child uh, and I wasn't going to um, let her suffer through chicken pox. <laughs> Um, right. without her mom. But uh, but when we started working together, it, again, was just a way that we could raise human beings together in the way that we wanted to, while also being creative and having a little more control over our schedules. Back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. I think by now you know that hiring is challenging. But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, and growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after an unsuccessful search for a new game artist to grow within her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can, too, by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones and find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised that she found applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at their web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. That's what she said. 
So you come together and create this beautiful work for Frozen, and Let It Go becomes one of the biggest Disney songs or songs in general in forever. It's an earworm for everybody from kids to adults to karaoke places, and you are now tasked with following that up. So the pressure of of knowing what a success it was the first time. Now, let's, you know, Frozen 2 has just come out. It's set a bunch of records. It has 300 million made already through two weekends. Uh, my nieces and nephew are already singing it, all the songs that they've already learned. Um, but talk about that moment when they come to you. They say, okay, the sequel's happening, and we want you to come up with a whole bunch of new songs that are just as great. It's so funny because there has not been a single interview we've done where someone didn't use the word pressure <laughs> when we're talking about Frozen 2. And I'm so glad I didn't know how much pressure we were under. Um, otherwise, I don't think we could have done it. We would have been totally paralyzed. But we were, were very lucky to have this amazing collaboration with Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck and and Disney Animation um, because Jen and Chris, when they called us and said, we're thinking about doing Frozen 2, they, they said, we're not going to worry about trying to replicate anything. We're going to do this the same way we did the first. We're going to talk every day. We're going to tell a story that's more mature, that goes even deeper, that is something we all really need to say the same way we did the first. Um, so we were very lucky because we never had to feel the pressure. Um, Jen and I think Jennifer Lee had to feel a lot of pressure, but she protected us from that in a, in a big way. Um, and she also had this great idea that what we were going to talk about was change and uh, growth. And those were things that we were really thinking about too. There, there's only, there's no such thing as a happy living happily ever after you can have a happy ending and then life is going to change and you have right. to go and find a new story. And that, that was something we were really interested in exploring. Yeah. You said in interviews, the villain of this movie is change. And the LA times said the antagonist can be anyone or anything from the difficulty of having to change to confronting the mistakes of prior generations. It is a much darker movie. There are allusions to climate change and, you know, political decisions by people that came before you that are now affecting your future. Um, when you're writing music, how much do you need to think about where does this fit within the story that this movie is telling? And how much do you also have to acknowledge that you want that song to live alone? Or do you think about that? Does it need to be something that someone wants to choose to listen to on its own versus just taking it within the context of the movie? I would say yes and yes and yes. Um, <laughs> writing songs for, for movies this big, it's, it's a multidimensional task you're doing. Um, you need to, I, I like to think of the songs in a musical uh, movie are basically acting like tent poles, holding up the huge circus tent of the whole movie. But those songs need to be strong moments that if you pulled those tent poles out, the tent would collapse. Um, so, so you you aren't just writing songs that could like are three minutes and they could be pulled out. If you write a song like that, it will fall on the floor. Um, at the same time, we've been doing this long enough to know if you write a song that's all about, say, water rights. Um, that song is going to be so specifically tied to plot. There won't be any emotion. You need an right. emotional motor to every song. And things that are just plot-based and external can't sustain singing. And the kind of concentrated attention that singing causes it just can't last for three minutes. So we look for those moments where characters, and they don't always have to be our main characters, though... Um, Often they are, especially because of the sequel aspect. We, we wanted to make sure we heard from each one of our main characters. Um, but moments where the character is feeling something so strongly that it, they can't even talk anymore. They have to lift off into song. You also want to look for a moment where they're discovering something 
and making a decision because of that discovery. Right. So that gives you a tiny, a small story, like a your own three-minute story within the larger story that you're really focusing on that's, that's usually a more heightened emotional place. Well, and that's what's interesting, too, about a movie musical. It's not a musical where every line is sung, right? It's moments within the right. movie that are dedicated to song. And I, I read one of the songs, I believe, called See the Sky, was cut, and your your husband said in an interview, essentially, we don't need three minutes of singing to replace what could be one line of dialogue here, and that's why it didn't make the cut. Um, that's exactly. that's so that's so hard to take, though. You've created something, you've written something, and and it has this larger, beautiful statement about about our climate and our earth, and and it becomes a line instead of a song. How do you take and learn to deal with those kind of um, decisions from above? Well, it used to be, I used to really talk about resilience, 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 because there were, it used to be more upsetting when something we worked on and worked very hard on fell on the floor. We would feel like victims for a second of like, how dare they do that to us? That was two weeks of work. Um, And we had a shift recently, and I don't remember whose idea it was that but it really was a powerful idea, which was we would write these songs anyway. Like we, we love writing songs. And when a song falls on the floor, first of all, as storytellers, we usually know why. And we're, we're usually the first people to cut them and say, you know, this, this song isn't working. Um, you guys can get rid of it. Right. Um, but now it's easier because we would write these songs anyway. That's what we do for fun. Even when we go on vacation, we write songs. So it's just another excuse to keep doing what we love together. And that really changed things for us. Yeah. And I wonder, does does whatever production you're working on for that song have the rights then to something that they don't use? Or have you now created a beautiful melody that can be totally changed and manipulated and used in the future? We definitely have recycled things, though we don't often, we don't recycle that often. Um, and I forget, different contracts have different, different things. Like if they don't use it for a year after release, it reverts back to us. Um, in some cases, uh, there are certain songs that they own forever. Um, if they, if they buy them for our, our song quote, like it's, it's very, lawyerly and agency. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but we tend to not recycle very often unless, unless it was like, Oh, remember that this would be perfect. Right. Cause it's all inspired by the story. And that's what I want to get to. So take me through the process. So for frozen two, it's certainly different than frozen one. You have established characters. You're now writing for voice actors that you understand their, their, their voices and their instrumentation and how they can use them. Um, but the plot, so informs the music. So take us through what comes first. And are you sitting down with the writer and director and, and whatever from day one, or do they first give us a story uh, and then you fill in the pieces? Um, in this case, we're sitting together from day one, other than, other than the big idea that Jen was like, I want this to be more mature and darker and, I think it needs to be about change and growth and, and a big question, which was the whole reason we did frozen two is we hadn't answered the question of why does Elsa have these powers and what is she supposed to really be doing with it? There was, there was definitely something that felt a little bit small about Elsa just hanging out in Arendelle decorating with ice. Right. Uh, right, She had these incredible powers, you know, and at the end of the movie, you know, so that's, that's the conversation that we had for about two years is sitting there going, where are each one of our characters? Um, It's three years later. Anna has everything she wants. Anna has the happy ending. The gates are open. Um, She's, she's got her sister. She's got the happy ending, but which also means she's got the most to lose. Right. Um, Elsa, there's got to be some questions about, like, what's up with me? Why do I have these? <laughs> right, and no right. one else in the world. Does, does anyone else have that? So it's, it's asking these kind of questions. Um, we all took trips up to Norway. 
um, and Iceland. Uh, you know, we all walked on glaciers. We really just allowed the landscape that we're that Arendelle exists in to to inform us. And I think um, you know, Jen and Chris were out in a Norwegian forest, and the forest kept doing bad things to Jen. <laughs> I think that kind of. Uh, triggered her imagination and um and then we were in a Norwegian forest and it really it felt alive so that was something else we were like let's use that um and it's really like playing it's it's playing and and bringing all of your ideas to the table and never dismissing anybody but just yes ending and the first song i think we wrote was the lullaby the mother sings it's called um all is lost uh, or all is found, sorry. Um, and that was just, again, us playing with, can we use this kind of mysterious Scandinavian lullaby um, in an epic way for the mom to be leaving hints, almost a map for Elsa right. to solve. Um, and that was the first song that stayed in the movie. One of the songs, Olaf's kind of fun song, you thought of a lyric while ice skating. Uh, tell me about that yeah. and how you had to find your way to write it down and not lose it. Okay. Um, one of the things I love about living in Brooklyn is we have this amazing ice skating rink in the middle of Prospect Park. And on weekday mornings, it's empty and it's got two rinks attached. So you can feel like you're skating in Siberia because you can just keep going. Um, you're not just going around and around in circles. But I was skating and um, trying to kind of just clear my mind a little because we were under that pressure, I guess. We were feeling a little stressed about about it. And I kept saying to myself, like, this movie, there, there are some plot points that are working and there are other plot points that aren't but it's all going to be okay in six months. In six months, this movie will be locked. Uh, and I was like, ooh, Olaf could say that. <laughs> Olaf could do. This will all make sense when I'm older. Right. And I ran to the guy. Um, his name is Jarvis. I ran to Jarvis, who's, who's like the nicest employee um, who rents the skates. And I said, do you have a pen? Do you have a piece of paper? <laughs> and then I would skate and I would write a line and I would skate and I would write a line. And I, I only recently put it together that the whole song has a, like a, a la, 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 la to it. It's like the rhythm of ice skating. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like right. Yeah. Left, 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 right. Right. <laughs> left. <laughs> And of course, it's good you wrote it down because I'm sure you're a pro by now because we all have that moment where we think, oh, yeah, I'm going to remember this. I'm putting it in my head right now. And then like an hour later, you're like, what was I? Oh, no, I've lost it. So I'm sure you've had those oh, yeah. moments before and now you know better. I got to write it down right away. Um, do you have most of those aha moments when you're deep in the process and you've been sitting, uh, you know, working for a while or is it more often those I'm, I'm doing my grocery shopping or I'm sitting with my kid and it pops into your head. I think it's whenever you're in a state of, of play and that can be, that can be sitting around in a story meeting and everybody's riffing on each other. And that's when you go, Oh yeah, this is what Christoph's song will be. Um, and you're kind of jiving off of the um, energy around you. Other times it is, I mean, I, I call them um, when you're on the bathroom, you're going to the bathroom. I call them <laughs> epiphanies. Uh, when suddenly it's like, oh, that's it. Because uh, you've allowed your brain to stop working so hard. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating how much we're learning about the importance of letting our brains be at rest because we don't get bored anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't wander and stare off into space because we have our phone at all times that can keep us company and fill our brain with other people's ideas. And it makes it a lot harder to find our own if we don't have those moments of rest. Um, so I'm not surprised that you get epiphanies. It sounds like something we should all be striving to get a, a few more of. Um, you know, right. you talked about um, in one of the interviews that you used your psychology studies a lot to make the lyrics for this particular movie because so much of this movie is about change. There's a real darkness to Anna song, which is about moments of depression and, and, and fear about, you know, what comes next or whether you want to know what comes next. Um, I've been listening to this podcast, Finding Fred, about Fred Rogers 
and the Mr. Rogers show. And it feels like that rediscovery of things that allow us to talk about things deeply, but in a safe place, whether that's puppets and make believe land or the animation of a Disney movie, you can explore really dark and serious issues that kids need to talk about and understand, but maybe don't need to have a full adult back and forth about when you're writing this. How old are your kids now? Now they're 10 and 14. 10 and 14. So a, a bit different in terms of, uh, you know, exactly how they're they're worried about what comes next. And puberty, of course, is starting to play a role, which is terrifying. Um, but when you're writing these, are you thinking, how do, how do I want to talk to young people about the very scary things that their parents are talking and worrying about and, and doing it in a way that's accessible to them? Um, you know, it's, it's really freeing. And when you work within the animation, so much of what they do is is knowing that kids actually view up. Um, you don't need to write down to kids. Right. Kids kids can handle a lot. So we never talk about uh, whether what what kids can handle. Um, we talk about what what are our characters. What is the story we need to tell through these characters, um, and. And again, what is the story we all need to tell as artists? And when it comes to the song, Do the Next Right Thing, um, you know, I've been given permission to talk about this, but um, Chris Buck, our, the co-director with Jennifer Lee, lost his son during the press junket of Frozen mm. 1. We were all in New York, and uh, he got the news. And... Um, and we, I watched him in awe, uh, the courage that he had to, to be there for the opening of the movie. It hadn't even opened yet to, to go through the award season, to, to just put one foot in front of the other and breathe and feed himself and get through the day when he and his family were dealing with the unimaginable. And, um, that's really who I was thinking of when I wrote the lyric to do the next right thing. I, I had studied grief in college. I had studied grief in my own life when I went through some dark moments. Um, but also my husband had just lost his mother. So I had done a lot of thinking about how, how do you cope with the deepest loss? Um, and that's what the song sprung out of. Yeah. It's a beautiful one. There's so many, there's seven new ones. Um, is Into the Unknown, it certainly sounds like because of the soaring melody and the ability for Adina to show off those pipes again, that that's probably sort of the next let it go, the Oscar, the Oscar submission one. Is that how you thought of that song as you were creating it? You needed this big moment? No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> never. The, the best way to, the best way to fail is to try and write a song you've already written. Right. Um, in this, in this moment, um, we had written a song that's on the deluxe album called seek the truth. We knew there had to be a moment where we got inside of Elsa's mind a little bit. Um, and that Elsa was the one who had bigger questions that she was asking that were going to drive the movie. Um, and we wrote Into the Unknown pretty early um, after Sika Truth fell on the floor, mostly because she was, it was once again Elsa asking questions to the universe um, in the way Let It Go worked. And we thought, you know what, we've seen that already. Um, and talking, we realized it would be so much cooler if Elsa was saying, was singing to a you, was singing in a duet kind of way. Um, and so... I think in one of our story meetings, we discovered the power of, of what if we embodied this restlessness in a voice and that voice is singing is that, ah, which is um, using the DSRA and it's a, it's a thing that composers have used for centuries that can't comes from a Latin hymn and it's in Gregorian hmm. chants, it's in operas, it's in Sweeney Todd, it's in lots of things that usually, means danger um and uh once we found that voice the song came pretty quickly because all we needed to do is get inside of elsa's head and have her 
first resist it um, and say, like, I don't, I don't want this. Life is good here. And then slowly as she engages, the sentences start having more words until finally she kind of gives over to, to the vowels of into the unknown, which is an octave. Do, do, into the unknown. She steps one. It's a ninth. And she takes one step out, but then comes back home within that yeah. octave, those boundaries. And then into the unknown. That's for, for musical people, that's a leap of 11 notes. That's called an 11th. People don't really do that. But once she sings <laughs> that, you know that Elsa has left the building and it mirrors the whole plot of the movie. Yeah. I mean, how wonderful is it to get to write for voices like Adina's where you're like, I want to do this, but you have to be able to do that. And that's a gift for you. Oh, my God. It's such a gift. And, and uh, I mean, we, we talk a lot about if you're given a Stradivarius, write for a Stradivarius. Right. And in the case of Adina, um, she can do things. It makes sense that she plays Elsa, who can do things that humans can't. Right. <laughs> um, because she can vocally do things the rest of us really can't. And then we get into the studio and really see her do it. And it's just like, it's just magic. And it, this time around, it was like, here is Elsa. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to all the people trying to sing that, like everyone saying, let it go. I've already seen a six-year-old in costume on YouTube uh, doing Into the Unknown. And um, it was it was good for a, a six it was a valiant effort but it is a tough song to sing so uh it'll be it'll be good to see all the hashtag, iterations of that <laughs> yeah uh, hashtag into the unknown challenge exactly so. it's gonna happen for sure um there's a panic at the disco cover of that how does that come about did you know that that was going to be a goal for some of the songs of this for for weezer and panic at the disco to do uh, covers of your songs i didn't know um Tom McDougall, who is our partner and the executive music producer over at, at Disney Animation, um, is is a, an amazing human being. And really, he's the first person who ever hears any of our songs. He's um, he's the one who makes sure, uh, you know, everyone is working together on the music side. And he's got all these wonderful relationships with rock stars. <laughs> so at the very last minute, he's the one who's like, maybe I'll call over to Panic. I think he, they would sound good on this. Yeah, um, and they do. Together. And that's that's like a gift for us. That's just a, a surprise extra bonus um, yeah. that always delights and amazes us. Well, and they're so um, musical. Like they they bring in such a feel of of writing musicals in their own music um, as a as a pop rock band, and so they absolutely nailed the song. It's such a fun version of it. Um, you know, you talked about. In writing, in writing the songs for this, the first movie was about going beyond finding love in the form of a handsome prince. And now it's um, finding your own purpose and, and finding where you belong. Uh, but you also flip that whole prince narrative on its head with music as well, because Kristoff sings this 80s power ballad. And it's totally the trope that the girl is always like, I'm lost without you. And instead, it's the it's the guy singing sort of I'm lost without you. I need you to, to make sense. Um, and you were inspired by Brian Adams, and I absolutely hear a bit of heaven in this song. Is it a scary departure <laughs> to say, I'm going to go do 80s power ballad in the middle of this with electric guitars instead of violins and all of that? Um, well, it was it was an idea. Bobby and I are both obsessed with 80s music, and, and I think <laughs> everyone should be in this world where we are trying to rewrite the toxic the toxic male script. Um, one of the things that's pretty great about the eighties that they, they got right is that men and women were allowed to sing big feelings because that's what feelings are. If you get one thing from Christoph's song, it's the moment you feel what you feel and your feelings are real. That gives him permission to go into this, this moment that's very stylized and, and I thought um, our collaborators at Disney, uh, I wrote like on the lyric sheet, like feel free to go to an eighties place. And Oh my <laughs> God, did they nail it yeah. so beautifully. Um, uh, but my point is that Kristoff and, and what, what has, we're doing with Kristoff um, 
in this movie is that he says things like, my love is not fragile, <laughs> which I think is such an important thing for yeah. boys to hear. Um, he also says when there's a moment that Anna comes running and he sort of swoops her up, he doesn't say, I've got this. You, like, I know what we're going to do. Instead, he says, I'm here. What do you need? Mm. Um, so that she's solving it. He's supporting that solve. It doesn't mean that he's any less of a hero. It means that he's more of a hero because – he he is uh, collaborating with her. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I love it. And the, yeah, I, I feel like Christoph uh, Christoph is a really powerful and yet really entertaining thing in this movie. I'm so proud of it, and I'm so proud we finally got a song for the amazing Jonathan Groff. Yeah, yeah, he gets his he gets his let it go moment. <laughs> um, so yes. the movie's out now. The response has been unbelievable. But one of my favorite uh, responses was actually from a football player. He's not seen it yet. It was uh, a couple days, I think, before it was released. Um, and I saw you shared this on your Twitter account, too. But here's uh, here's the Packers' Jamal Williams. Uh, I think we have the sound from him talking about his excitement and how he felt like Elsa on the field. I feel great. I felt like I was in Frozen. Frozen 2. <laughs> I'll be like the first one in line. I haven't seen it yet. Is it out yet? No, it's not. Oh, I can't wait. Is it? Yeah. I can't wait. Pushing kids out the way. Like, be screaming and stuff. I can't wait to go see that movie. I just love it. He's so giddy about it. I mean, this grown man, big, beefy football player, he's got this bunch of maybe 20 in the video. You could see this t- reporters everywhere, and he's talking about how he feels like Elsa on the field. It's magical. Um, tell me about some of those responses, whether from famous people, celebrities, people who have reached out to you after seeing it. Um, well, I, we've had so many amazing responses. I mean, one of the things, it makes sense to me that a professional football player would identify with Elsa. Would identify, <laughs> like, again, there, there, some, there are people who do the superhuman under huge amounts of pressure with the weight of the world on their shoulders. Um, and, and so many of, so many people who are at the peak of their career do identify with Elsa um, because, because it comes with, it comes with this very difficult thing of not fully allowing yourself to feel all the time. You conceal, don't feel. Um, and, and we're very happy that, uh, Elsa smiles and then feels extreme joy, spoiler alert, at the end of this movie, <laughs> because everyone deserves to feel that way. Um, yeah. I, I guess one of the most profound responses I've had is I have a friend who has two daughters, and one of their one of the daughters has a terminal illness, and um, and the she was going to bring the younger daughter. The younger daughter is, is okay. It's the older daughter who has a terminal illness. And she asked me, you know, whether it was okay. And I said, well, you know, just tell her that Anna, Anna uses her strengths and finds a way through. And she wrote back um, after seeing it, thank you for showing my daughter how to do it when the time comes. Mm. Um, and so that, that's wonderful. I mean, talking about right now, I have tears in my eyes. So, yeah. Uh, if if we can help people through those dark times, if if that song can be of uh, of use in those moments, then we've done our job. Yeah. Well, and the "Show Yourself" song, which is gorgeous, um, that song made your own daughter cry, right? It did. Um, I we have a fourteen year old. She was in the first movie. Um, and they both were, right? They both had little roles. Yes. Katie sang the first verse of, do you want to build a snowman? She was seven at the time. Annie was three. So she played the troll that said, by the way, (laughs) I don't see no ring. Uh, (laughs) That's so great. And and they both did a lot of scratch for this movie, but I don't think their voices are in the ultimate in the end. But um, uh, she's, you know, right now, we're in the process as a family of getting her ready to, to launch and to find her own path and listen to her gut when we, 
you know, we, I love the metaphor that's in one of the parenting books I read that we have to think of ourselves like the edge of the pool. She's out swimming in the deep end uh, and we're there on the edge if she needs us and she'll come back and she'll kind of catch her breath mm. uh, and hold on to the edge for a second. And then just as fast, she has to push off and go back out in the deep end again. Um, and, but she really had an emotional response to show yourself. As I've seen many, many teenage girls uh, are really feeling that. And I think um, if my daughter can hear what I hope for her uh, in the form of a Disney song that I wrote for her, <laughs> she, she can't always hear it in the daily life as yeah. I'm sending her out the door saying, you've got to wear a hat, put on those gloves. <laughs> Uh, I love that. That's a that's a wonderful way to get to message her, but also all the all the other young boys and girls who are kind of dealing with the same thing. We're sort of running out of time, but I have I have a quick one that I wanted to ask you about because we we talked about this on the panel and I found it so fascinating. You work with your husband in most capacities, especially at this high level, doing these big jobs, um, and your sister sometimes as well. Your husband is a double egot, if I remember correctly. That's right. Which is just absurd. Um, you are a nominee got and you're working your way towards being a full EGOT. Um, and you come into these meetings and interactions with all these different people, essentially with the same job, right? He plays the piano. You, you do the lyrics. There's a, there's a real working together collaboration to create these things. And yet you talk about how differently you're treated, presumably by virtue of gender. Can you talk about that a little bit? Cause that's sort of fascinating when you know going in, there's this, it should be an even playing field and yet you're, you're not treated the same. Well, you know, the, the one place that we have a, a very different style and I think because we have to is around conflict. Um, he's allowed to go a little, a little more hot go in a little more hot when, when we're disagreeing with our collaborators. Um, and I, I feel like for, I feel like, and this might just be me, but with, with women, if we go in too hot, we quickly get labeled as the B word or crazy. Mm. Um, so I have to stay so much more rational and, so much more, um, you know, keeping any passion or any anger really low. But sometimes that means I can't really fight for what I need to fight for. Um, and then I get upset if, if Bobby gets really into it and heated that I'm going to be painted with that brush. Um, and, and I'm like, don't do it. And so I start to pull him back because they lump us together sometimes. Mm. It's, a, it's a very... Um, it's a very tricky thing when we're in conflict, especially with people. Some of our collaborators are much more rational than others. There are, there are some collaborators um, who, who are also people who get hot under the color very quickly. Um, and that in that context, I usually just, I just let Bobby fight the fight uh, and, and try and uh, communicate in whatever way I can to him what I want and let him go into it because yeah. I feel like, especially in, in theater, things, things are always under, uh, there, there's a lot of pressure in a very small amount of time. A lot of people having to work together, uh, with the stakes are very high. There's an audience showing up that night. Um, so things can get a little heated and, and that's where, that's where our gender does have differences. Yeah. And also just the fact that you're you're trying to create a space where people see more women in roles that they aren't accustomed to and that there is more of a of a, a gender equality across the various pieces that make a, a performance on Broadway or a movie. Um, and so there's a pressure for you, too, in just representing something and continuing to push forward, uh, creating and opening doors for other women. That is very true. Um, you know, I'm part of this group called the Lily Awards that was created when they realized that I think it was in like 2007, the amount of um, musicals or, and plays that were being produced uh, with female creators was exactly the same as it had been in 1907. 
It's like mm. 7%. Um, so what is going on? And really examining in a proactive way, um, how, do we, how do we change? What is happening here? And how do we change it? You know, a big, a big part of it is if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, now they have this thing called the count, which holds theaters accountable. Um, that happens every single year that looks at the demographics of who is writing the plays that are being produced. And that has shifted the needle a little bit. Yeah. Child care. There's some, um, there's some amazing uh, um, like summer residencies that now involve child care. That shifts the needle a little bit. Um, it's still not enough. There's still more going on. Uh, a lot of it is unconscious bias of the people in a position to hire. But I, I think that's changing too. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I was just in a, an incredible meeting and one of the things we talked about is the actual physical spaces in which work is done were created with an, a, a male workforce in mind. And how are there subconscious ways in which that actually affects the work and who does it and how successful they are, whether that is something like having childcare or we talk about, you know, female referees in the NFL. There's no women's restroom right off the edge of the field for them to run to during a break or their their clothes aren't made for them. Sort of like the all women spacewalk that they didn't end up doing because they didn't have two women's spacesuits. Right. Um, how those little right. things can sort of contribute to whether people feel uh, welcome to do the job or can succeed at it. And so um, it's awesome that they're looking at some of those differences that might you know be barriers to people. Uh, taking that step forward and and changing the dynamics of who's creating and, and who's seen. That's fantastic. Uh, before I let you go, I know we're running over, but we have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, oh. I know this is really um, mean to say, ask. <laughs> I'm going to say Queen's Greatest Hits. Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, very, very good for an island. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Uh, I'm like a dog to a bone with uh, <laughs> um, wanting to communicate. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh, my biggest failure. My metabolism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's (laughs) Uh, Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. Were you usually uh, receiving the punches or delivering? Um, I think I was delivering it. It's it's connected to that very dramatic uh, Jesus Christ superstar, my senior year. Oh, wow. Oh, no. Oh, it was really, there was really politics going on there. Wait, what character were you fighting and were you in costume? Please tell me you were Mary Magdalene and you were just throwing haymakers. I was, I was Mary Magdalene. It was a, it was a post-show parking lot. Uh, oh, my gosh. Parking lot. Ruckus. You were fighting Jesus. I would, I would request the, the lost tapes. That would be amazing. Um, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Ooh, Michelle Obama. That would be a good one for sure. Yes. We've and gotten I would, that one. I would run yeah. for president. I would, yes. Day, I would be like, I'm running for president. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I agree. <laughs> uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? The most embarrassed I've ever been. Oh, um, it, there was a situation where I ate raisins at lunch and then I had to go work out. Um, in junior high in the high school workout room before a soccer practice. And I was doing those reverse sit-ups and I let out the biggest fart and all of the football players stopped and said, who did that? And I said, I had raisins at lunch. Oh no. (laughs) Too much detail. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My metabolism. <laughs> uh, of course. Uh, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Communicate your feelings. That is a great one. 
and very important. Maybe Christoph will I think teach that everyone. Would solve all that you wouldn't have to say kindness. You wouldn't have to say no violence. And if everyone could communicate what they are feeling in a better way, we wouldn't have to um, fight each other in the parking lot after <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar. So true. Uh, number nine. What's what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, um, I guess my when we were worried that my daughter had uh, uh, a degenerative disease. That was the worst. Oh yeah, that's, she doesn't. That's, yeah, that's but scary. There though. were a couple of touch and go days there. Yeah. Um, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, I, kind, generous, uh, inspiring. Hmm. I like those. Um, and finally, the bonus question, who should I have on this podcast? Who would be someone good to talk to? Ooh, uh, Michelle Obama. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> I've got a lot of requests for uh, for Barack and Michelle. <laughs> Oprah? Oprah, yeah, sure. Yeah, you want to hook it up? <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on I wish. it. I'm on it. Uh, right. Thank you so much. This was so fantastic. I know you're crazy busy. Congratulations on the incredible success already. And um, I look forward to uh, singing all of your songs with my nieces and nephew for years to come. Thank you, Sarah. That's what she said. Looking for another fantastic ESPN podcast? Then check out Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy. This week, Julie's joined by ESPN's very own Doris Burke, who shares stories from her illustrious career covering the NBA and college basketball. You won't want to miss it. Be sure to download and subscribe to Laughter Permitted wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, people who write... Who cares in response to something on social media? Use of this phrase is rampant and usually indiscriminate. Spotted just today, for instance. The headline, an Arizona Cardinals player is suspended indefinitely for betting on his own NFL team. Who cares? Who will win the NFC East? Vote here. Who cares? Today on The Young and the Restless, Chelsea feels guilty about Connor. Who cares? But one in particular stood out. The headline that Megan Rapino had won the Ballon d'Or as soccer's player of the year. Who cares? Now, this kind of who cares, that's usually the kind of post that inspires a whole bunch of who cares responses. The Mystics win the first WNBA title. Who cares? Simone Biles beats everyone at everything and is a full-on magical warlock. Who cares? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Insecure man-children who are offended by the very idea of talking about female athletes and teams so small and so pathetic that they can't just scroll past something that they're not interested in. They have to stop and post something completely dumb about how nobody cares. And that's the worst part of it all. Because of course you care. You just took the time to respond, which means you care. And it's a massive self-own to say who cares while you're wasting your time and keystrokes typing it. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Insecure man babies need to stay the hell out of my menchies and everyone else's menchies when badass women are being celebrated. And people in general... Just need to stop self-owning with the idiotic who cares posts. Stop posting at all if you don't care. There, I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate and review and leave your dilemma in the review and maybe I'll fix it on a future pod. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 